everybody, and welcome to the Intuitive Catalyst Podcast. I'm Leilani, your host, and today I have a very special guest for you, Cam Rosen. Cam is a specialist cannabis nurse educator, podcaster, passionate photographer, and lover of all plant medicines. When Cam's not diving into research papers, you can find him in the mountains, the rivers, the ocean, or his music studio. Cam hosts the podcast, This Might Be Helpful, where he explores the neuroscience behind various cultural and behavioral practices. And y'all, if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend you go check it out. He spits such wisdom there. He's also the host of the Age of Info podcast, which is a predominantly research-based podcast. And when I think of Cam, I, I just honestly, I see him as a divine vessel of universal wisdom. He is a holder and a curator of so much wisdom that I feel we as meat vessels, we talk about this term, like we are navigating these experiences um, within these human vessels. And I think that, I think one of the biggest gifts that he's given me, even just knowing him from his social media presence, is that he provides so much guidance and wisdom that absolutely flows through him. Um, And he's so generous in providing things that are helpful, supremely helpful, which I think is where his podcast name comes from. And our conversation is so good. We discuss a lot about what it means to be in these human vessels and to navigate what we believe is a very spiritual experience on this earth. And I am so excited to share this conversation with you. And I hope that you find it helpful as well. So grab your tennis shoes if you're going for your walk or grab your cozy spot and your cup of tea and enjoy this episode with my friend, Cam Rosen. Oh, hi, Cam. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a oh pleasure. I don't know. I was telling Cam before we started recording that I was like fangirling, but on some level, I do feel like we've known each other before, like past lives. And I feel like pretty much everyone I bring onto the podcast, I'm like, there's a reason we were drawn to one another. And there's a reason that I was lucky enough for you to say yes. <laughs> so thank you for being here. And yeah, so tell, tell us a little bit about, I see on your bio, plant med nurse. I think that that, yeah, tell me a little bit about that um, before we dive into the questions. So plant med nurse, I'm a, a cannabis nurse educator is my technical term. Um, cannabis is just a, it's a term that we don't use on Instagram very often because uh, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't like it very much. And so I fly under the radar, but plant med nurse, essentially my job is to uh, educate practitioners, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, pharmacists, and patients on methods, protocols, and um, ways to, to utilize this plant in a way that allows people to engage in healthy, sustainable medicine with the idea that we use it as a catalyst to facilitate lasting self-change. I love it. I, um, when I was going through this funny that we're starting here, cause I was like, we're going to start with some questions. And that wasn't the one that came um, 
really naturally. But when I was going through my big kind of spiritual awakening, cannabis was actually a part of that, um, like kind of opening. So I, I can't wait to kind of dive into that a little bit. Before we go all, the, all up in cannabis, um, tell us a little bit, Cam, about who you are, what is your big work in this world, and how do you source from your intuition to do that work? All right. So fantastic questions. Who am I? Um, I've always found that a very difficult question to answer, especially since I really get, got into my you know, meditative practice because I go, who am I? I'm, I'm the awareness of this moment. I'm the awareness of Cam. I am the awareness of thing. But there's also the very biological fact that there have been plenty of memories threaded into my gray matter to serve as the foundations of how I integrate with this world. Um, I was born in uh, rural Montana, raised there for half my life. And then with an Aussie mom and an American dad, we moved over to Australia. Uh, we were supposed to be here for a couple of years to be closer to mom's family. And then we ended up staying for, uh, this would be my 14th year, maybe 15th year. Wow. So we usually would go back and forth every single year. Um, then COVID happened and obviously I haven't been back in quite some time. And then that time that I was kind of locked down in Australia, I, uh, I finished my nursing degree, realized that I didn't want to be working in a hospital. Um, too many fluorescent lights. I want some organic stuff around me. And yeah. at that time I decided to pursue my organic curiosity, which was cannabis and plant medicine and using these to, you know, to get tangible outcomes for people. Um, I knew I wanted to get into the cannabis space. I didn't know how because I didn't have the money nor the experience to open my own clinic. I had no idea, you know, the regulatory frameworks around something like that. Um, and then the very few cannabis jobs that were out there, they were advertising for healthcare practitioners that had many years more experience than I did. So I decided to find a third door. I started a podcast and I reached out to a whole bunch of people that I believed um, you know, had, had messages to share. So, you know, researchers that I really loved their papers and um, what they were doing, different doctors and healthcare practitioners uh, said one, asked one person in particular, Dr. Ethan Russo, and he said uh, yes straight away. And I was, I was fan, fangirling out. And then I went, oh gosh, I have to figure out how to make a podcast now. <laughs> and so I made a podcast, chopped up the, uh, the clips, put it on LinkedIn with the idea that um, if I don't know where to go, I'll just, I'll bring it to me and attract it, put it out there. And so then that happened. Uh, during the same time, I started my own company. At the time, it was called Trifecta Health Co., where I took a class of compounds that are found within cannabis called terpenes. They're the aromatic compounds. And I, I extracted those from other legal botanical plants because they're the same compounds, but they're shared throughout nature, and then reconstituted those to mimic some of the therapeutic effects of cannabis, but without the, um, the compounds in it that make old government people angry and upset and scared. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> and very uncomfortable. Uh, and so over the last couple of years, I've just been working at these, these two startup companies, planning my next, I, I say planning, that's a joke, that's a lie. I, I haven't <laughs> much at all. <laughs> I've been driving in a general direction as we were talking about before. Um, no real plan. I got asked the other day, what's my five-year plan? I said, like, I don't even have a five-day plan. Is this what people are doing? Five-minute plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's, a, it's a brief overview. Growing up in Montana, lots of time outdoors. Dad owned a whitewater rafting company, still does. Mom had a little shop called Boomerang Beads, uh, traders of the exotic. 
And uh, I'll be going back there this year for the first time in four and a half years to get back in touch with the roots, get on the, get on the river, do some guiding, sit in the sunshine and go with the flow. I love that. I went to Montana for the first time last year. I live in Seattle. And so okay, I, cool. I got out to Glacier National Park for the first time. And it is beautiful out there. How can you not have a spiritual experience growing up in Montana? It's it's a very powerful place. There's, uh, it's, it's a type of grandiosity and a type of like, raw beauty that inspires irreplicable feelings. I see you in this really unique position in the work that you do. And, and just like I mentioned, I've been watching your path for a bit um, through Instagram and then eventually um, TikTok. So I actually discovered you on Instagram, which is probably not how most people discover you. But I think you walk this path of being deeply rooted and connected to the ways that the earth and what the earth produces can bring us forward is what I'm hearing, like toward healing, toward transformation, redemption. I don't know. Those are the words that are coming through. Um, But also being really rooted. I've I've heard you talk about your meditation practice. Um, so tell me a little bit about the role of your intuition in, in the ways that you navigate your experience. Growing up, I was always wondering, still am, what, uh, how, how all of the things and interests and ideas and skills that you're engaging with at any given time are going to amalgamate in some way. Uh, growing up, uh, I would go around busking, playing live music, and then I got really into photography. And then from that photography, that led to a whole bunch of traveling and then getting into events and videography. And from that, learning how to record things and put things together. And then when I was doing my nursing, I thought I could put this t- together. I'll be a traveling nurse adventure photographer. And then from there, I got into plant medicine. And so all these things, um, I'm a massive believer in following your natural enthusiasm, because I really believe that it will guide you unfailingly. Uh, it is the highest self. It is how it communicates with you. It is when something speaks to you, when you have a, a spark of curiosity and you follow that and you indulge it and you travel the warrens, the, the rabbit holes in those directions. I'm a believer that if you follow that natural enthusiasm, it will take you places that even at the time, they might not see, seem like they're relevant, but everything's relevant to everything. Um, I think that there's, you know, people get concerned about, oh, I don't want to go f- too far down this path because if I have to pick another path, then I have to go back down to the bottom of the mountain and then hike up again. But everything that you learn along those steps, you carry with you. You do not go backwards. And so things that you learn, uh, you know, in a job that you, you don't even like, maybe, you, you take these skills, these foundational assets with you, and then as you go through life and continue to fo- follow your organic curiosity, you can put things together in a way that nobody else can because nobody else is you. What I love about what you just described is the evolving nature of our human experience. And we have such a linear way as a people of thinking about, okay, well, and I just described to you, you know, a year and a half ago, I blew up my life. I stopped working at a corporate job that was feeling very soul-sucking, and I um, left my husband at the time. And we have this, like, tendency to think, like, okay, I'm starting over. Like you said, like, we're at the bottom of the mountain. 
But I have a good friend of mine who always says we're never the same person at any moment throughout our entire human experience. And so there's really, there's no such thing as starting over. We're always carrying the lessons of every, every experience that we've had. And, and my belief is that it's every experience we've had in any other dimension we've ever lived, any life we've ever lived. Um, so yeah, I guess the question that's coming through in your opinion, and, and again, this is going to be a very free flowing <laughs> um, interview is what do, how do you hold the tension of like being in this place that we're in and this life that we, this, this kind of like, we, we've all signed up for this very linear way of thinking about our human experience. And yet I know you just even just based on what you share is that it's so much more expansive than what we're seeing. How do you hold that tension as somebody who kind of seems to walk between both worlds? Mm. I hold that tension in, I think maybe the same ways that, that many people hold it, which is in your um, critical self-evaluation and the unnecessarily critical self-evaluation. When you're a self-directed person and when you're a person that wants to become multidisciplinary and when you're a person who wants to pave their own way in life, um, it's a double-edged sword because you have all you know, the capacity to do so, the capacity to grow. But with that growth comes growing pains. And a lot of those growing pains are in those little voices that are telling you like, you're doing the wrong I hate thing. hate those assholes. You haven't focused on this enough lately. You haven't <laughs> I, I, and we, I know that those voices, you know, especially those, those little subconscious manifestations, everything that your brain does, and this is the, the convergence that I really like to explore the most. And this is why I'm infinitely grateful to be alive right now is that we can look at a lot of these you know, ancient, historical, cultural, deep practices, and we can see as well that, that neuroscience is converging and, and really backing, backing it all up. Um, and that, that allows us to frame things in a way that can be really beneficial in terms of communicating these things to people. Because you know, one of the things about helping people on their, their unique individual journey is that everybody's going to resonate with something different. Um, and being able to tailor your, your tailor, tailor your language to somebody to find that resonance, that hum that is around you, the frequency, uh, allows us to communicate these things. But that subconscious mind is all those little voices of doubt and uncertainty and anxiety. They're all doing it to help you. They just haven't been given the instructions to do so because all of those subconscious wirings and programmings have been accumulated just as you go about existence installed by the experiences that this little meat vessel walks through and installed by the thoughts of the society around you. And so with that resistance that we're talking about with those um, holding that tension, it's, uh, it comes back to determining which aspects of you know, society's projections you want to hold on to and which ones you don't. And I, I am, especially lately, kind of believing that if you want to be truly successful and by successful, I don't mean that the fast car and the nice house, I mean, waking up and, and feeling embodied in what you do, aligned in what you do, um, waking up and enjoying the inevitable struggle that comes along with pursuing and, and growing. If you want to have that kind of success, you need to disregard, you need to disregard people's opinions. 
you need to disregard um, even even you know the the mentors that we hold close. Take in the information, analyze it, take it on board. But at the end of the day, disregard it because you are the one to save yourself. You are the one that is responsible mm. for how things pan out. It's really interesting hearing you say. Also, it, when I heard you talk about like disregarding the mentor, it's like. I feel like we all have those people in our lives who, from whom we seek approval and, and all of those. I just had a conversation with my dad last night, who's my, my big person around that. And there comes a point where there's almost like what I'm seeing is like an image of, of like scales tipping toward trusting ourselves more than we're trusting even the people that we've given all that power to in terms of their knowledge or experience or their opinions of us, um, which I think uh, part of me thinks, you know, I've been, I wanted to ask you about Ikigai, Ikigai. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, you talk about this in some of your content and I'm curious if you could really just define it for us and, and what's the connection to all of this? So Ikigai uh, and I hope I'm saying that right as well. These are a lot of the words that we read and um, you know, don't necessarily hear out loud, but Ikigai is, um, and I'll, I'll bring it back to uh, the more historical concept of it and then the westernized version of it, which is the, the historical version is something that you love, something that you're good at, and something that the world needs. So it's, a, it's that intersection between these things. And um, you know, a more westernized version and, you know, something that is, that is relevant to, um, to us, especially to the people that want to be able to commoditize something that they love so that they can do something that they love for, for profit. And that's, um, you know, be, being realistic, you can meditate and have a vision. You can, um, you know, have a, have a yoga practice and want to go and hustle as well. Those things can coexist. And, you know, if people say, oh, you, capitalism is just a game. It's like, yeah, indeed it is. Are you playing? Yeah. <laughs> you want in? <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the westernized version is kind of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for. If you can find an intersection between those things. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the altruistic thing of I need to go into healthcare. I need to do something people need because people need art. They need love, they need compassion, they need creativity, they need support, they need guidance, they need adventure and excitement. So all of these things, people, people need all of that. There are you know, infinite types of, of nourishment and support. And if you are a person that truly follows your own kind of intuition and enthusiasm and curiosity, then you will be bringing something to the world that the world needs because there are a lot of people that haven't been able to find that themselves. I, I wrote a book last year. I published a book and there's a chapter called Lavender. Um, and it describes this, uh, this kind of awareness that I had as I was watching the bees kind of swarm around this lavender bush. And um, what, what was kind of birthed from that moment is that we tend to think we're in competition with one another about the work that we do. Even as, you know, my, my kind of Clark Kent identity right now is um, supporting leaders to connect with their intuition and, and 
organizations to help connect to like the soul of the organization and how to like fully express that. Um, and I just, I met with a friend a few days ago of like, I know someone that's doing that same work. And I was like, what? How? I thought I was the only one doing it. And there was this like kind of weird ego thing that happened where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. Um, but because we are so indoctrinated in this, this idea that experiences are limited, um, that the work that we do is, you know, perhaps not valuable and, and all of that. But what I love about Ikigai and the way that you describe it is that there's like infinite possibilities of what, what work, quote unquote, work can look like. Um, and I think that, Nav- yeah, please. Uh, Naval Ravikant is um, one of my favorite kind of modern day philosophers. And he talks a lot about this concept of specific knowledge. Specific knowledge is something that cannot be trained. It cannot be automated. It is something that is only gained by following where your unique enthusiasm is headed rather than whatever is hot right now. And while you're gaining this specific knowledge, it will look like work to others, but it will feel like play to you. And if you continue to pursue this specific knowledge and embrace accountability, uh, society will reward you with um, leverage, equity, and responsibility. And those are three pretty big things. But what is also tied into this is that there's never going to be a decision-making framework that works for everybody. You know, if Gary Vee says, oh, this is the, the way I make decisions, and he doesn't say this, but as an example, this is the, the four-step matrix I use for making decisions. Like, that's great for that person. They haven't had my experiences. They don't have my intuition. They don't have my ikigai. And so it comes back to that idea of, you know, disregarding opinions in order to, to do these things. And you don't often know where it's going to end up, but as long as you are gaining that specific knowledge, then you will be able to connect the dots and put it together in a way that simply nobody else can. And so if you, you know, go into IT and you get a, a bachelor degree in IT, and maybe there's a hundred thousand other people that did that. Um, but then you, you picked up photography a few years ago and, so now you have this, this kind of background in IT, and you also have this skill as a photographer, and then you try and get into recording, and then suddenly you have another couple of skills that you've only gained because you were curious and interested in it. And now, instead of being the person with just the IT degree, you actually have all of this surrounding specific knowledge that differentiates you from the crowd. And you're not doing this to be competitive. You're doing this, again, through feeling like play, through gaining that specific knowledge because you are curious about it. And you can put things together in a way that nobody else can. And that is where you kind of find your, your ikigai. There is an abundance in everything. And if we don't see that, it's because we're not looking. There's that, that the competition is something that is, is less and less a thing nowadays because we have the most abundance of opportunities ever right now. Like there's abundance of everything you can travel in any direction and, and do what you want to do. Like gone are the days where you need to you know, pursue this one path and then get an internship and you're fighting with a hundred other interns to get that job and you know, figure out who's the one delivering the coffee and hopefully you get picked out and you get to you know, the, the floor. So right now, it's also difficult because you know, I'm, I'm speaking from a place of, of privilege. I do have you know, a job that allows me to 
have space to think about these things. You know, if I have multiple dependents, you know, three kids and I'm working three jobs, how am I even going to have the time to think about what inspires me, where my organic curiosity is, my curiosity in that you know, circumstances taken over by the need to survive. And so we do have that, but also your intuition is trying to speak to you at all times. We've just become really good at suffocating it and subduing it because a lot of the times if your intuition speaks to you and you're not in the circumstance that you think allows you to explore that, then it's something scary and upsetting. And so it's easier to suppress it. The same thing goes with you know intrusive thoughts. How many of these intrusive thoughts that people have are simply there because the, the, the manifester of that thought, that voice that's trying to help is not being heard because every time we have a moment of boredom um, and blank space, we fill it with a phone, we fill it with an algorithm, we fill it with something. And so that voice never gets a chance to, to get let out. And just like you know, a child that's being neglected, that, that voice is only going to rise in volume until it becomes a dominant thought because we haven't given it space. Mm, it, and, I don't even know what the question was. I oh, it doesn't even matter. That's the beautiful thing about my podcast is that it, we go where we go. I, I, it, just the wisdom in, that you shared, I'm just grateful for in this moment because I think that, yeah, it, when we, I heard you talk about like competition, like external competition, but then there's also this competition within our minds about, um, and hearing like who, who we believe we are, who we, you know, the, um, like how, how we identify, like I, I have a friend who's kind of in a, kind of in an interesting place because for the first time in his life, he's really allowing his intuition to have a voice and and kind of starting to quiet the other parts of um, his psyche that would tell him that oh that's unsafe that's you know you can't you can't like do do certain things in your life or you know you'll fall out of status or whatever um, and it just makes me wonder for those who are listening who are like okay I get that that I need to let my intuition like have a voice that I need to honor it. And, but there's also all this competing noise. Um, what would you say to them? What would you say to people who don't know how to do that? Surrender, mm. which is in itself a difficult concept to really take on board because you know, people think of the term surrender and they think of you know, waving the white flag and you know, getting down on your hands and knees and letting mm. somebody kick you in the guts. But it's, really not it's a surrendering to what is whatever we exclude we give strength to um, so when we have these thoughts that are coming in saying no don't do that instead of trying to almost physically push them away and suffocate them we need to let them come to the surface greet them with kindness and compassion as if you were speaking to you know an old friend that's, that's down on their luck or a little bit confused and, and wayward let those voices come to the surface, greet them with kind and compassion and say, thank you for trying to support me. I understand that this is what you're trying to do, but these thoughts aren't serving me right now. I need to be heading in this direction. And if you continue to do that, your brain has an incredible ability to uh, prompt neuroplasticity and adapt. And when those thoughts continue to be met with kindness and support and compassion and understanding then they begin to reframe themselves to be more in line with 
where your intuition lies, where your emotional guidance system is pointing you. And that's what alignment is, is when your emotional guidance system, the, the physical manifestations of feeling that are occurring in your body, the little pangs of adrenaline and cortisol in your heart, the flutters in your gut, maybe the discomfort in the tightness of your hips. If you can come into bring those things into your awareness and really ask yourself, what is it that I need? What is it that my body and my intuition is asking me for? What is it telling me? And if you can, we have to verbalize it in a different way, right? Because our body uses a very different language than what our mind uses. Our mind uses language, thoughts, words, and our body tries to communicate with us in, in different ways. And because we've been so calibrated to listen to the verbal side of things only, we tend to neglect what's going on in the body. When that, when that little flutter of anxiety comes up, we instantly kind of attach and react to that as anxiety. When that flutter, especially in those first kind of moments of manifestation, that can easily be excitement. That's something that your, your intuition, you know, the prism of your five senses and the you know, ineffable senses that come from the combination of those things, that synergy, that entourage effect, that can initiate feelings that we haven't sat with because we haven't surrendered to them. And if we surrender to it, let it come to the surface, a lot of them lose their strength because a lot of this that we're talking about here as well is, is self-mastery, right? Mastery over the mind. The mind makes a, um, what's it? Epictetus said the, the mind makes a wonderful, a, a good slave, mm. but a horrible master. And that's true. It's the, the subconscious is in control and we're constantly acquiescing and, and submitting to its demands. Then we don't realize it, that the mind becomes something that we become scared of. We can't sit alone with it, right? Like how, how often do you see people that they're standing in line for a coffee or they're waiting in line at the gas station, any moment of, of boredom is, is filled with insecurity. Oh, people are looking at me. I wonder what they think they're thinking. I better get on my phone like everybody else and I can just tune out the outside world and I'm safe here. And all of those thoughts that you had, they just kind of get pushed to the surface to come back stronger later. I love, I love all of that. And what, where my mind goes is um, the root of suffering. I, I'm kind of early in my philosophy study and all of that. But what I hear you saying is suffering isn't necessarily the emotions or the like physical sensations or, I mean, sometimes it is, I guess, like pain, I guess there's a difference between pain and suffering. But um, what I hear you saying is it's not necessarily the emotion that arises. It's the, the meaning that we assign to that or, or the judgment that we have around it um, or how we allow it to create our inner experience versus allowing it to be what is. It's, you know, back to this term of surrender. Um, when we, when we suffer as uh, you know, Naval Ravikant, again, he just has, he spits fire uh, suffering. I'm sorry. Desire is a contract you make with yourself that you will not be happy until you get this thing. And then, you know, that that's more of like a modern day equivalent to, to suffering and desire because we, we pin our hopes of happiness on these external things, um, whether we look at it through the capitalistic, materialistic lens of, I'll be happy when I get the car, when I get the house, when I get the new job, when I get the, the girlfriend or the boyfriend. But desire is also any circumstance that you are yearning to be different, 
than what is. Um, you know, life's not fair. Things are happening to me. If we add our own little layer of suffering on top of the suffering instead of surrendering to what is, and that, that is the path of least resistance, right? Like, you know, something A happens, we react by doing B. And instead of, you know, this has happened, I must improvise, adapt, overcome, go towards a solution, the path of least resistance. When we add our own little unique layer of suffering on it, we get angry about being mad, sad about being sad, confused about why we're so confused instead of just sitting with that original sensation, that original feeling and kind of exploring that as it is, and then doing what we have to do to overcome it or go through the resistance. And so that path of least resistance is often through the resistance. And usually the resistance is us, you know, going back to the stoic philosophers, um, the object is the way the, um, the barrier is the way like we, in order to overcome, we have to go through our resistance and we are usually the thing, the thing that's in the way of ourselves. So we have to get out of our head and kind of you know, the way I look at suffering, especially desire um, and our self-inflicted misery that it comes with that is like when you're running out of the house, it's only when you're running late that your shirt snags on the door handle. And that you know, brings its own resistance and it just adds and stacks and stacks and stacks. But if we had to just said, all right, looks like I'm running a little bit late for work today. I'm already late. Surrender to it. I'm going to walk out the store instead of run. I'm not going to let these external circumstances disrupt the tranquility of my mind because we cannot choose how we feel about things, right? It's all about the power and how we respond to how we feel. We cannot control anything in this external world and any semblance of control is really an illusion that just has yet to be shattered yet. And that will come. The shattering will come. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in kind of shattering that yourself, challenging your beliefs because the world will challenge them for you, um, challenging your faith because the world will challenge that for you too. And when the time comes, as times do, then we are the ones that we can ultimately rely on, the one behind our eyes. And that comes through challenging ourselves too. Mm. I love, I love that. I, I keep thinking as we're talking about, um, well, first of all, if that were me snagging my shirt, which happens nine out of 10 times when I'm in that s scenario, I then go, I'm not just like, ah, my shirt is snagged and I'm late. And I then go to like, why am I like this? Why do I do this to myself? Like the, the, like the stories that we create in our mind about why this experience has happened. Like, it's just such a, a spiral that we get into. And I do feel like that a lot of that is because we've been conditioned and, and indoctrinated into this culture. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the connection is, but it's like, why, why do we then, why do we make a bad situation worse with the ways that our thoughts then just like take over? Well, this is one of those things where, again, like philosophy and neuroscience intersecting. Um, when our brain tries everything it can to maintain and preserve its correctness, because being wrong is an inefficient use of energy. And so if you catch yourself saying, I've had a bad day because you were late for work and you were running out the door and your t-shirt got snagged on the handle and you spilled co your coffee and then you got stuck in traffic. And then, you know, Janice said that the, you handed in the wrong file, whatever, all of these things that because you 
you're, you initiated this thought of I've had a bad day, your brain will give you every other piece of confirming data to, to reestablish that. It's like, yes, you have had a bad day. What else has happened? Oh, well, this has happened. This has happened. This has happened. And we can reframe this by using a different anchor point, right? So anchor point being the beginning of where you start things. I've had a bad day because I was late for work or I've had a good day because I woke up and I had a nice warm shower and I woke up in you know, a positive mood. My friend sent me a really sweet text. I haven't been in touch with them for a while, but I'm going to see them this weekend. Um, while I was in the car, my favorite song came on the radio. I got to work. I saw my best friend. I'm so lucky to be in the same office as my best friend. Isn't that incredible? And so by using a different anchor point in your day, in your week, in your month, in your year, in your life, you can reframe what your brain considers to be the moral or uh, intrinsic interpretation of your experiences thus far. And so it really is up to us to find the silver lining in any situation, find the upside to the downside, um, because a world will not do it for you. These are all conscious choices. And this is that, you know, the subjectivity of our reality, of our universe. If we do not consciously try to reframe things ourselves, you know, deliberately, then the world will do it for us. And the world will often reframe things in a way that doesn't suit us best, not because the world is malevolent, but because it simply doesn't give a damn. You know, the world evolution, life itself has come from resistance and friction and turmoil and struggle. And we are blessed enough to be able to be inhabiting a body with hardware and software advanced enough to recognize that it itself is the universe experiencing itself from this human perspective. And that's a pretty wicked thing to know. And so if we can understand that, then we can understand that we can reframe things how we please. We do have infinite power to do so. That I was hearing the word powerful, like we're way more powerful beings than we allow ourselves to believe most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, when we believe that we're victims of our circumstances versus the powerful beings that get to define how we experience ourselves as the universe experiencing ourselves. <laughs> like, it's just, it's wild. Um, I kept hearing a practice of gratitude. Um, there's a lot of science, I think, around practicing gratitude. So what is the connection there? Gratitude is a, um, it's an emotion that we are still trying to analyze through the lens of neuroscience. And by we, I mean people with probably microscopes at Harvard or something. <laughs> but gratitude, the way that it, it, it takes a certain pathway that is completely different to all other pathways, like neural pathways, and it kind of circumvents all of these other more uh, anxious pathways that exist within our brains, this, this primal circuitry. Gratitude is almost like a, like a form of elevated circuitry that once activated kind of bypasses everything else. And so this practice of, of gratitude, it's one of the most powerful uh, initiators of neuroplasticity and neuroadaptation. Um, and they've looked at the, the various forms of gratitude because there's, you know, being grateful for what you have, being grateful for the people around you. Um, but there's also being grateful for the fact that people are grateful for you. That is a, a really powerful form of gratitude because it takes it away from the I and kind of projects it onto someone else. And that someone else is generally someone that we can more easily project our own you know, reflections of gratitude onto because it can be hard when you're in a, you know, a negative m mindset and mind space to 
to feel that gratitude for yourself. And it's actually easier to project yourself into the eyes of another, looking back at yourself, being grateful for that person that you see. It's almost kind of like a astral projection for gratitude, but you can do it in traffic. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and gra- you know, gratitude, another powerful form of gratitude is listening to other people that are grateful for their experience, right? So listening to people that have been in a, sorry, my dog's barking in the background, listening to people that have been through turmoil and challenge and struggle, um, danger, and they've had people that help them get through it, people that they are now you know, infinitely grateful for themselves. So gratitude is something that you can bring it into every single breath, breathe in gratitude and breathe out love. And I, and I think we undervalue kind of the vibrational change that we bring into any space when we come in with gratitude. I mean, just like I used to work in an office and it was, you know, it was a tough corporate job and people were generally kind of pissed <laughs> just in life. And to enter that space in gratitude, like we, I don't think we really talk about the energetic shifts that happen when we enter a space in our wholeness. Right. Um, and so it's just, it just, it makes so much sense. And the question that's coming through is one of like misalignment is I imagine myself in, in that office of just like, man, people really hate their jobs and their lives. And, and so what, what do you do and have you experienced like misalignment? Like, and when I say misalignment, I mean kind of like misalignment within your soul, within your experience. Um, what have you done to take yourself out of that? And what would you tell people who are maybe experiencing that today? Misalignment is something that can happen uh, geez, on, a, on a moment-to-moment basis, on a day-by-day basis. It's something that it's uh, when you can develop the practice of recognizing that misalignment just in how you feel. So the misalignment between what's going on in your body and what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your head. Um, the manifestations of chemicals that are going on and, you know, you trying to force things. If you're forcing it, then there's a, there's an element of misalignment going on, but it doesn't have to be difficult the way that we become aligned. And it's one of those things where, you know, paradoxically, the more we try the less it might happen, the, the harder we seek, the less we find, the more we yearn, the more distance we become from that which we want. And so it's a, a matter of surrendering as well. This is how I'm feeling right now. There's, uh, there's something coming through my body and my mind that I haven't addressed in a way that um, has resolved itself. Um, I haven't given enough space. I haven't held enough space for myself. I would really look at burnout as well. It's really easy to feel misaligned when you're tired, when you're burnt when you've been pouring out of an empty cup, when you've been giving everything of yourself to everybody else and there's nothing left in that cup for you. And so it's uh, going back to the things that you know make you feel good. Um, if feeling good is your main prerogative, not feeling pleasure, not necessarily feeling joy, but feeling good within yourself, then make that your main prerogative and then do things that are in alignment and accordance with that. Uh, often there are things that you don't really feel like doing in the moment. And that comes back to the resistance is us. The best way to put yourself into a different state of mind is to do something that you've never done, to go towards discomfort. And I think that perspective is also huge, whether it's speaking to people that you love, people that care about you, people that you can learn from, mentors, guides, and going to new places, new stimuli, 
freshness for your eyes. Let them just drink it in. You know, going going for a walk in the woods, going to the beach, going to the city, just taking in the natural abundance of the stimuli around you because uh, we get really trapped in the phone. And that comes, of course, there's lots of neurobiology at play. The, your brain dissects the world into near and far. Everything in the near category is stuff you can you know, touch, see, smell, feel. It's, it's immediately engageable. And then everything in the far category is something that is modulated by dopamine because dopamine gives us the motivation to act. Norepinephrine comes in to make us go. But uh, the phone tricks us because we look at the phone and even though it's close to us, it's in the near category, when we use it, we're, anybody, we're anywhere but where we are. It takes us very far away. And in doing so, keeps us exactly where we are. And so it's about putting away that stimuli and realizing that there is so much around us. You can go out for mm. a five-minute walk and just be absolutely inundated with stimuli. And if you can surrender to that, like a nice meditative practice, more of an open monitoring practice rather than some kind of focused attention, which is practice being the space in which it all occurs, allow it all to come into your space of consciousness, the thoughts, the sounds, the birds, the bees, the dog barking, the chainsaw, sawing, everything occurs within you. You are the space in which it all occurs. Without the space, it doesn't occur and practice wrapping your awareness around each individual thing that comes into your mind as the birds chirp and that, that sound comes into your space of consciousness, just wrapping your awareness around it and then realizing that as much as you wrap around it, as much as you try to hold on to that thing, it will dissipate. It will, it will lose its strength. It will, it will you know, transition into a state of ineffability where you can't hold on to it and our thoughts are much the same but we really try to hold on to those things because we have a fantastic ability to have neuroplasticity and we can lodge these thoughts into our brain in a way that we can't really lodge a sound into it and it's the you know the temporary transitory nature of all things change is the only constant so if you don't like how things are then you need to instigate that change and be that change because the world's going to be changing around us perpetually it is the nature of existence in the universe itself and surrendering means surrendering to that change and sometimes this ultimate way to surrender is to surrender to the resistance and, and go through it and do what you don't want to do because if you do what you don't want to do do what you've never done you will feel how you've never felt and you'll be able to continue translating that into every aspect of your life it makes me think of Again, like I feel like surrender is such a giant theme of everything we've talked about here. And I think what always kept me from surrendering in my story, like in my in my life, is that fear of losing control. Like, what if? What if things get worse before they get better? I have news for you. They probably will. <laughs> I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves and and I'm you know, I'm going to go and live the life that I know that I can and be a powerful being. That means that I have to let go of a lot of things in the ways that my life has been, right? So in this moment, what I'm also hearing is surrendering to the possibility that it could get worse before it gets better. And what better actually looks like if we're like defining that is, is just being more in our body of being whole, a more whole being of being of living an experience that is more expansive than we've been living up until this point. Mm. 
So I think people get afraid of the word surrender because it's like, well, that sounds terrible, like you mentioned. But at the same time, we'll never know unless we give ourselves over to the experience and trust that process, right? The key to having no regrets is to not live in a regrettable way. Mm. That's it. Don't live in a regrettable way. Live is a verb. It's an active thing. You do it every day. If you want to get to the end of your life and look back and go, fuck, yeah, I did that, then mm-hmm. don't live regrettably. And, you know, when it comes to it might get worse before it gets better, all of it. you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to assign emotional you know, capital to these things as well. And we can just, mm. as it comes, it will come. It will be what it will be. If we can surrender to mm. that and you know, make the best decisions we can with the information we have available to us. And then when we know better, we can do better. And in that time, um, you know, pat yourself on the back for being a manifestation of stardust that's inhabiting a vessel that is aware of itself. Pretty awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that you always come back to that of like, this is kind of nuts, yeah. you know, it's like it's what, who we are. And I love that you use the words meat vessels to like, yeah. because it's so grounding. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm doing way better than I ever thought I would as a meat vessel. Like, that's, that's awesome. Oh, Cam, it's been it's such a pleasure sharing space with you. I'm so grateful. The one question that I always end with um, is if you had a bumper sticker that you could plaster all over the world, something short and sweet, what would, you, what would be your, your snippet of advice? Breathe. Mm. Just breathe. And you have a really great, you just published a video on breath that I was just like. Oh, um, oh, about how we are shallow breathing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, we, every day we go about our lives, our, our technology tricks our primal biology into thinking that we're hunting because we're in a state of anticipation, waiting for the next thing to pop up as we scroll. Mm-hmm. Um, that puts us into a state of shallow breath into the chest, which increases cortisol, adrenaline, glutamate, which then alters our emotional state and that emotional state has a bi-directional effect on breathing, which continues a shallow breath. And that's when we, that's when we spiral. If you can catch yourself today, anybody listening to this, when you are shallow breathing, maybe you're stuck in traffic, maybe you're on the hold on the phone and you're in that anticipatory state, catch yourself and take conscious control of your breath. Breathe consciously. Do as much as you can consciously. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Cam. Can you tell all of the people how to get in touch with you? Um, You can find me on Instagram at Cameron Rosin, R-O-S-I-N, or my podcast, uh, This Might Be Helpful, or my website, ahelpful.co. Your podcast, it was actually a podcast episode on breath. That's that's what it was. Your podcast has been phenomenal. I've been listening. It's so good. I encourage everybody to go out and listen because you have so much channeled wisdom coming through you um, in the podcast and your videos. I encourage everybody to go out and check out Cam Rosen. Thank, Thank you so, so much for, for being me. Honestly, here. I had a fantastic time. And I hope that uh, everybody listening, thank you for indulging the tangents. They're used to tangents. It's great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cam. Mm, oh, friends. Thank you so much for being here for that lovely conversation. I think 
One of my favorite things about that conversation was, other than the fact that Divine Truth was just all over the place, um, but what I really love about engaging with Cam is how easily he can describe this tension that we hold being these human vessels navigating a very spiritual experience and how expansive our experience is. I think it's easy for us to believe that we just are born and we go through some things and we work and we love and we die and and that's okay, but it can be and I believe it's meant to be so much more. So I appreciate Cam so much for all of the ways that he curates divine wisdom and spiritual truths. And I am just really grateful that you are here to witness and to listen to this conversation. If you want to connect with Cam, there are a few ways, all of which are in the show notes. You can go to his website, ahelpful.co, go to his Instagram or TikTok, both at Cameron Rosen and his podcast called This Might Be Helpful. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on all the socials at Shaman Leilani and at my website, shamanleilani.com. But for now, be still, my friends, and live into your impact. I'm so grateful you're here, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.